are you? I could have gone to class. And then finally by like two o'clock, she's like, let's go. So I'm walking to my car with all my stuff. And he drives and poo, by. And, <laughs> and, drives by. <laughs> and he was like, hey. I was like, oh. I'm so <laughs> mad at my friend. I literally told him, I was like, thanks. My teacher just drove by and now looks like I'm a liar. I didn't even email you. I was like, I can't. I was like, I can't even. It's fine. But you know, you've missed more classes than anyone else in this class. <laughs> well, you don't think That'd that's true? Awesome. <laughs> it's so not true. Yeah. <laughs> it's not true by a factor of like um 13 <laughs> no, no 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 it's 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 um two orders of magnitude almost <laughs> no it can't be two orders of magnitude because there are only 26 classes so it could only be two orders of magnitude if you came to zero classes um, no i know it isn't no 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 I, I don't mean you i mean the the a person who's missed more classes than you even that person has come to more than zero Maybe classes somebody's come to zero yeah. No, there isn't someone who's right. to zero. Well, there's lots of people who have come to zero classes. They're just not enrolled. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh set way. theory. All right. <laughs> um, um, there is one person who's come to... I think you only need one hand <laughs> to count the number of classes this person's come to. Who is enrolled. Um, but that's okay. Okay, so here's the plan... Um, We'll, we're going to read all of Paradise Lost for um, Tuesday, at which point you will have a test on it that will be 95% of your grade. <laughs> okay? So that means no matter how badly you're doing, all you have to do is read, reread Paradise Lost three or four times for Tuesday, and you can still get an A minus. <laughs> How long, how long have you been, how, how, this is like our 24th meeting? Um, yes, it was a joke. Did you want, <laughs> she's rolling her eyes, my God. Okay. It's only, it's only 12.30. How did you get up? Yeah, really, what did you get up? Oh, my God. Okay. Um. What we're going to do is uh, talk about Paradise Lost today and Tuesday. Um, what we'll do today and Tuesday is talk about books one and two of Paradise Lost. Um, and I assume you've all read at least book one. Um, and then we will have the optional last class on Thursday, May 1st. Um, it'll be at 1230 um, here at 1230. Um, and... <coughs> In that class, we will talk about the invocations to the other books. So we're, today we're going to start by talking about the invocation of book one. The invocation is the invocation to the muse. And um, <clears throat> that's, as you know, how epic poems, not only epic poems, but epic poems in general start. Um, Anger Sing Goddess is the beginning of... The Iliad. The Iliad. Um, and Sing Muse of the many... Um, <coughs> Wild Man <coughs> is the beginning of The Man of Many Wiles. What could the other possibility <laughs> be after the Iliad? The Aeneid. No, that would be the other <laughs> possibility. Yes. The Aeneid is the other other possibility. Um, the Aeneid is Arms and the Man I Sing. Um, but then after that 
very arrogant little beginning, Virgil says, oh, and help me, Muse. <laughs> um, I, I don't want you to think I'm getting too big for my um, classical britches. Um, so he calls upon the Muse. Also, remember, Byron will begin book three of Don Juan, which I'm not mispronouncing, um, with the words, hail, Muse, etc." Um, those are the fir first three words of Don Juan. Um, so um, Milton begins also with an invocation to the muses, um, partly because that's conventional. Um, partly there's a reason that it's conventional and a reason that Milton takes very, very seriously. It's a reason that um, <coughs> most epic poets will take seriously, but Milton perhaps takes most seriously, which is the idea that um, the kind of inspiration you get from the muse is a payback for the fact that you want to be inspired by her. Um, and that this payback is a kind of collapsing or telescoping um, uh, response on the muse's part, um, which we saw when we were looking at um, Herbert talking about prayer in a poem like Denial. Um, which is that if you invoke the muse, the muse will help you to invoke the muse. That the entire poem um, is, in a sense, its own invocation. That what you have, it's, it's like what you sometimes get when you tell um, little kids stories and they, um, or they tell you what story they want to hear. It's a game you can play when you babysit, if you like. Um, which is um, the child tells you the story that it wants you to tell them. And uh, that is, you know, tell me the story about how Hansel and Gretel were being really mistreated by their stepmother and how she said to her husband, let's take, take them out to the woods and abandon them, but how Hansel was too, too, um, too clever for her, so he filled his pockets with stones, and when they went out, he dropped the stones. And um, that way they were able to follow the way back, but the next day the stepmother, so all of that is under the, under the introduction of tell me the story about. <laughs> and um, in real life, if you're clever and the person you're manipulating is silly enough, you can get them to tell the whole story that they want um, um, you to tell them. But the invocation of the muse works the same way, that is it's, anger sing muse the anger of Achilles and how when um, he had to give up um, Briseis because um, the, because Apollo said unless he did that blah 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 um, so the entire Iliad is could be described as its own invocation here's the story muse that I want you to to tell me about so that I can sing it and invoke, in invoking the muse and describing what he wants, he gets what he wants. And it's because he invokes the muse that he gets what he wants. If he had turned to um, his neighbor and said, tell me, O Mortimer, um, <laughs> about this story, he wouldn't get it. But the idea is that the muse um, is present in an epic poem as the figure you invoke, and because you're invoking her, um, you are able to say what it is that you want from her. There are some people in real life that you can tell what you want and others that you can't, and it depends on them. This is actually the theory of psychoanalysis, that um, the, uh, of psychoanalytic practice, um, which is that ideally the analyst is supposed to be entirely silent and, um, you know, the parody, but it's also the reality of it, 
is um, that what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to say, the analyst is silent and you're saying, oh, well, now what you're thinking is that the reason um, that I wouldn't call my mother um, on her birthday is that um, I was afraid she was having sex with my father. I don't think that's true, but I see you really think that. And, <laughs> wait, and oh, I see. You're imagining that it wasn't only that I wanted to break them up because I hated my father, but it's also because I had some kind of desire for my mother. I can't believe you would imagine such a thing, but I see that that's what you're thinking and that you probably think it had something to do with that dream that I I had when I was four years old. And so the whole, the whole idea, this is what Freud recommended, was what's called analytic silence, is that if you're talking to someone who um, is supposed to know, um, then the fact that you suppose them to know, that you grant them the authority to know, um, helps you then to, or, or um, causes you to um, pay attention to what it is that they're supposed to know, which is the story. And um, so the analyst doesn't actually have to know anything. And there was, for a while, there was an attempt to computerize analysis, um, which worked a little bit, but not that much, um, where um, people would just talk to artificially intelligent bots without knowing it, and they would confess their whole lives thinking that that's what the bot was telling them about themselves. Uh, the famous bot is Eliza. Did people know about her? Um, so Eliza is basically a paranoid bot um, and uh, what would happen with Eliza was um, whatever you said she would take offense at no matter what um, and then um, someone came up with the idea of a um, psychiatrist um, programmed very similarly to Eliza except kind and so what the, what the psychiatrist would do is whatever you said the psychiatrist would just encourage you to say more by kind of agreeing with what you said. Um, so if you said something like, God, do I hate my father, the psychiatrist bot would say stuff like, you know, sometimes we all hate our fathers. Um, <laughs> and you'd say, yeah, but you don't understand. This is different. And the psychiatrist bot would say, sometimes it's hard to understand what's different about this. <laughs> and, um, and people would interact with them in chat rooms. Um, and people would get really, really upset at Eliza, and people would get really, really confessional to the psychiatrist. And Wait, did people think they were real? People? Yes, thinking wow. they were real people. And then someone had the had the really good idea of setting Eliza and the psychiatrist on each other. Uh, <laughs> um, so it was, it was a really interesting war of words <laughs> among these two bots. Um, but the idea is, in real life, we do tend. Um, to if we're talking to someone who we imagine knows things more that we don't know about ourselves, um, knows things that we don't know about what it is that we want to say or how to say it, um, it will frequently be the case that um, that imagination is actually a root into what it is that we know but don't know that we know. Um, and so that's, that's a fact about human interaction. Um, that fact becomes divinized or theologized, you could say, when you actually um, are seeing it as what a relationship to a muse could be. Um, that is, that in invoking the muse, the muse um, will come to your aid in helping to invoke her. And that's something that happens in real life also. That is, that you know, you're tongue-tied and bashful in front of some kind of authority figure, 
But one reason that figure is an authority figure is because they will help you when you're tongue-tied and bashful and help you say what it is that you want. Um, help you to say what it is that you want. That's what the Wizard of Oz is really about, um, is helping Dorothy say what it is that she wants, um, which, as you know, is silver. Um, <laughs> you do know that, right? The Wizard of Oz is an allegory about the gold standard. Oz is for ounce, O-Z. And the Yellow Brick Road is the Yellow Brick Road of gold, which is destroying the economy. Mm. Um, does that make it better or worse? Better. Good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there is a right answer. Better. Right. Is there more evidence than just those two things? Oh, yeah, there's tons of evidence. Uh. Um, what do you think the evidence is? <laughs> All right, see, there you go. <laughs> the Tin Man is painted silver, but he's a false coin. But what? Are they the the? Yeah, they're silver in the book, so the movie doesn't like really mess it up. I think the movie wasn't interested in the. Um, in, in the question of, of the economic um, <laughs> species that we should be relying on. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a ton of stuff in the, book, in the books, and Baum himself was against the gold standard, and it all had to do with um, uh, William Jennings Bryant and not being crucified on a cross of gold, etc. Um, and the Wicked Witch of the West, um, I think, were... They might have been oil companies... Um, and the Wicked Witch of the East were the Eastern Banks. And, um, and really it all comes out of John Milton. So the idea then in general is that there is the Herbert idea that if you pray, being able to pray is the granting of the prayer. The fact that you can pray is what you're praying for. You're praying to be able to pray, and that can either be a disaster because you fail which means that you can't even pray to be able to pray. You think you're trying to, but your words fly up, your thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to happen. All right, from? Wasn't my little comment. <laughs> yes, okay, good. See, you knew. Um, so, but if you really do pray to be able to pray, then the very fact that you're really praying to be able to pray is self-granting. Um, so you either have doubly ungranted prayers because you can't even meta-pray. You can't pray to pray um, because you find yourself not really praying to pray. Um, you're trying to pray to pray, but you're not really trying. Um, and that's the problem. So it can be a disaster. Um, or it can be wonderfully self-granting which is the very fact that I want to pray is all I need. Who straight your suit is granted said and died. As soon as I succeeded in asking, it was granted straight immediately. That's what it was. That's without it. asking. Without asking. Yeah, there I him espied who straight. As soon as I saw him, that's all I had to do. Um, whereas in, and you can see how in Dunn's Holy Sonnets, these things, um, this separation, this bifurcation is... Um, um, something that can exacerbate itself at every moment. Or again, think of denial. That is, all those verses where he can't pray. Um, some would to pleasure go, some to the war and thunder of alarms. Um, his thoughts, like a brittle bow, did fly asunder. Some would to pleasures go, some to the war and thunder of alarms. But finally, when he says, you know, um, um, that's so... Um, 
Thy, thy bounties granting my request, they in my mind may chime and mend my rhyme. Please let that... Oh, it happened. Um, so that's the theology. Now, Milton is much more about inner human experience as absolutely central um, to what you are, even than the other Protestant poets that we've looked at. So for Milton, it may be, and I think I'm just going to say this straight out, um, I'm going to give what's um, not quite the satanic reading of Milton, but it's, um, um, it's very valuable to start off in the territory of the satanic reading of Milton. It may well be that Milton is an atheist, and I think reading Paradise Lost as a poem, as a document of atheism, um, will get you a lot more deeply into what's going on than reading it as a document of worship. And um, to say that it's a document of atheism is to say that it's a much deeper poem, which makes much deeper demands on human beings than a document of worship would. Um, a way to put this is to quote something that Milton says in Areopagitica, which makes, I mean, Milton wouldn't have thought he was an atheist, um, but he would have been wrong, possibly. <laughs> um, a moment in Areopagitica where Milton describes what he calls idolatry of the truth. That is, um, Milton is, is extremely powerfully against any kind of idolatry. Um, to quote the great Miltonist Christopher Hill, a wonderful sentence, idolatry is a short summary of what he detested. <laughs> um, and um, I think it should be a summary of, um, I think it's right to detest idolatry. So what does idolatry mean? It doesn't only mean worshiping um, idols, you know, going to see Dagon and saying, oh my goodness, this thing made of wood is, is so sacred and I worship it. Idolatry is um, worshiping money. Idolatry is worshiping success. Idolatry is worshiping power, worshiping authority, um, worshiping um, those who have um, things that they can give you that you might want. It's not that it's particularly wrong to, um, it may be wrong, but it's not particularly detestably wrong to flatter someone in hopes of getting what you want from them. Oh my God, your course is so good and I really need to pay. Um, I think that's a good thing to do, especially in course evaluations. Um, it's not that it's particularly wrong. No, me? <laughs> no, just look in your heart. Um, it's not, it's, um, you know, that's just ordinary human life. What's wrong is to believe it. What's wrong is to convince yourself that someone is great because if they think you think they're great, they'll give you something you want. Um, so for Milton, um, the idea that idolatry, that worshiping something um, as superior to yourself um, is just wrong, that it abases what makes you human. Um, that idea is so far-reaching that, as I say, in Areopagitica, he talks about an idolatry of the truth, where you um, worship something, which is true, but not because it's true, but because you're an idolater. 
Um, that for Milton is something that's very, very common in human life. Um, respecting the truth, not because it's true, but because you, um, like all of us, are easily brought to worship something, to abase yourself before something. So Milton is radical enough, or I think you should conceive him as radical enough, to see that the worship of God can be idolatry. And that's why he would be an atheist, or why the language of atheism would be a useful language, because um, worshiping God as um, you know, a figure one should adore, um, the question is, why should you adore God? And there may be answers to that question, but the whole language of adoration is language which um, interferes with thought. Um, adoration is not the same thing as love. And um, to confuse them would be idolatry for Milton. And if there's one, I mean, that, that's actually the less irresponsible way of describing what happens in Paradise Lost, is that it's a poem which is opposing adoration to love and saying that it's really, really easy to adore, um, but really, really hard to love. Every time, you know, you get a crush on someone across the room at a party and you think, yes, that person, I would give up my life right now for that person. <laughs> um, you know, which flickers through everyone's mind all the time. That's, that's um, the first step of adoration. Um, but it's the opposite of love. And for Milton, it's adoration even of God is wrong. And um, what you will find in Paradise Lost, um, if you read the whole thing, is that the loyal angels, those who do not follow Satan in his rebellion against God, they all adore God. And that adoration is itself a huge sign for Milton of their shallowness. That is, the loyal angels, with the exception, really, of a very, very tiny handful of them. The loyal angels adore God, and in adoring God, they're fine. That's, that's perfectly okay, nothing wrong with adoring God. It's just they're shallow. They're of no interest to Milton. Um, and what is of interest to Milton are the rebel angels. So what Blake very famously said about Milton was in, in his great um, work, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, um, Blake very famously said about Milton that he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. That is, um, the whole quotation is, the reason... Milton wrote in chains when he wrote of heaven, but wrote with freedom and sublimity when he wrote of hell, was that he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. Um, Shelley, a little bit later than Blake, was sure that Milton did know it. Um, he just refers, he doesn't even have to say who he's referring to. He just mentions um, when he's talking about Paradise Lost, he talks about the hero of Paradise Lost, assuming that everyone will know that the hero of Paradise Lost is Satan. Um, he doesn't have to say Satan, who I think is the hero of Paradise Lost. He says, you know, there are some issues with the hero of Paradise Lost, and then he goes on to list them. And he never even has to, feels that he has to tell you that that hero is Satan. Um, so the basic idea in Paradise Lost is, or the basic um, history of the interpretation of Paradise Lost, 
is that there is a split between the angelic interpreters, of whom the, the um, most well-known modern version is C.S. Lewis, um, and the satanic interpreters, of whom the corresponding person to C.S. Lewis um, is Philip Pullman. Um, and Philip Pullman is explicitly writing um, his dark materials, which is a phrase from Paradise Lost, as you will have seen, or you will see when you read book two. Um, he's explicitly um, contrasting his dark materials to um, the Chronicles, the Chrono What Calls of Narnia. <laughs> um, see, I knew you'd get it. Um, it's a retelling of Paradise Lost the way Lewis thinks it should be done. That is, Satan is, you know, he's, he's just a little bit too charismatic. The White Witch, you know, you wouldn't be fooled by her. Um, and the fact that Edmund is, you know, that's because he's a jerk. Um, and um, God in Paradise Lost, he says some kind of yucky things. Um, but Aslan, he's always great. Even though he's severe, he's always great. So that's C.S. Lewis basically um, retelling Paradise Lost for children um, and young adults and probably even more for older adults um, in ways that really make you, put you on Aslan's side and not on the White Witch's side. It's really hard to be on the White Witch's side unless you have, um, unless you're a precocious ironist um, <laughs> and, then, and then it's fun. And, you know, Tilda Swinton. Um, but um, it's much harder to be on God's side in Paradise Lost. And, it should, it, and it's not harder in a good sense. It's not like, oh, I mean, C.S. Lewis's basic argument about Paradise Lost is, yeah, it's hard to be on God's side in Paradise Lost, but that's the point. It should be hard. Um, easy to be on Satan's side, but that's the point. You're sinners, and that's why you like Satan so much. Um, and um, that's why Sue, have you all read the Chronicles of Narnia? You know that Susan is treated very badly at the end. Um, you know why? Lipstick. Bad, bad, bad. Mm. Um, so that's C.S. Lewis. And he was actually a really good guy in real life. He was just really awful, in my opinion, um, in what he was trying to do in his, in his fiction. Um, so um, the satanic reading of Paradise Lost sees Satan as a rebel against um, impossible odds who nevertheless puts right and justice and freedom above comfort and wealth um, at the price of um, fawning over the leader. Um, so um, when Satan says in Book One of Paradise Lost, here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built it here for his envy, will not drive us hence, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. What matter where if I be still the same and what I should be, all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater. Um, so God is made greater by force, by power, but not by not for moral reasons. And Satan is morally a far greater being than God. That's the satanic reading of Paradise Lost. 
Um, and it's, it's a hard reading not to see as um, largely true. Um, Satan does not have, this is something Shelley also says, is not as morally perfect as he believes himself to be. And that's an important thing to recognize, that Satan is not as morally perfect a being as he believes himself to be, but he is certainly a morally superior being to the God who tortures and, and pursues and persecutes him. And that's, that's Shelley's um, insistence about the hero and the villain in Paradise Lost. Yeah, Justin. Another possible parallel to the Iliad is that, that opposition based on refusing to fawn is very reminiscent, at least to me, of, of Agamemnon and Achilles, Achilles in the exactly. beginning, where he refuses and that's, that begins that whole conflict. Yeah, exactly. If you ask who in, classical anti- or who in the great classical um, epics um, you could compare to Satan or whom um, Milton is drawing from in characterizing Satan, the answers have to be Achilles, um, Aeneas, and Odysseus. Um, and Odysseus is, he's an interesting figure because in everyone except Homer, Odysseus is evil. That is, Odysseus is a watchword of bad behavior. But one of the great things Homer did in the Odyssey was to make Odysseus the hero, to take someone who is, is a watchword for villainy because he's a cheater. That's what Odysseus does is he wins by cheating. We would say he's a trickster, but he's a trickster who um, in all other stories is a bad trickster, a cheater. But what Homer does is he turns, including in the Aeneid, but what Homer does is he turns him into a good trickster, someone who, against overwhelming odds, nevertheless manages to find um, ways through and out of the situations that he's in. And Satan is um, a combination of characteristics of all three of them. Um, like Aeneid, he is um, exploring a way to um, find a new world. Do people, do people know this about Aeneas, what the Aeneid is about? So the Aeneid begins with the fall of Troy. Um, the Trojan horse has belched out um, its, its Greek inhabitants, including Odysseus. Um, they burn Troy down, kill Priam, kill many, many other people, um, and Aeneas escapes with his family, but he has nothing. He, he doesn't even, his wife doesn't, um, his wife disappears. Um, so he has his father, his son, and his household gods and nothing else. And he has no place to go except to set out on sea to try to establish a new place to live as a refugee, as a displaced person from um, the fall of Troy. And not only that, but the queen of the gods is against him. And she won't let him go where he's trying to get to, which is Italy, but instead, um, causes a great storm to almost destroy him. Um, so that is like Satan at the beginning of Paradise Lost. Um, his world has been destroyed. His um, In the war in heaven, which will be recounted later in Paradise Lost, the way it is in the Aeneid, um, in a retrospect, in a, in a flashback, um, where a character says how he got to, how things got to be the way they are, um, in the war against the forces of heaven, um, 
Satan and his followers are utterly destroyed, utterly defeated, find themselves literally in the middle of nowhere, in hell, and now Satan in extreme danger with fire all around him, as Aeneas has dealt with fire all around him in Troy, is now going to try to find a new place, and he sets out upon a stormy sea of chaos um, in order to get to a new world where he can try to reestablish um, himself and his followers. So he begins with Milton explicitly comparing him to, um, or as explicitly as you like comparing him to Aeneas. Um, at the end of Book One of Paradise Lost, Milton actually um, translates three lines from the Iliad, um, the best translation ever of three lines of the Iliad, um, when he's describing the fall of Mulciber. Um, and that comes straight out of the end of Book One of Paradise Lost, comes straight out at the end of Book One of the Iliad, um, exactly the same place. So he's making that connection. In the invocation of Book Three of Paradise Lost, where he invokes the muse, and which we'll be talking about on May 1st, on May Day, um, he compares himself to other blind poets and other blind prophets. And the blind poets he compares himself to are Thamorous, who is a blind poet, Homer himself, the blind Homer. You all know Homer is blind, right? Okay, so you need to know that Milton was blind. He really was. It wasn't just some gimmick. It wasn't just a shrewd career move. He was actually blind. Um, that's what I think Truman Capote said when Tennessee Williams died. He said, shrewd career move. Um, so um, Milton was blind. So was Joyce. Makes you start to wonder. Milton was blind. Yeah. He was blind. He I went blind as Milton did. Yeah. Oh, they both went blind? Yeah. Before they started writing? No, they started writing and then they went blind, which for a lot of people would screw up their writing, but yeah. for both of them um, actually seemed to um, force them to even deeper verbal thinking. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually really interesting because Milton had an astonishing visual imagination. This seems to be the case if you go blind. Um, if a, when a sighted person goes blind, um, one of two things will happen if you if you look at them fifteen years later. Um, some sighted people will have lost even some 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 blind people after about fifteen years will have lost even memories, even visual memories. Um, they won't remember what seeing was like, and. Um, that happens, I think, in about half the cases, is that um, that part of their brain gets reused, recruited for, for other senses, and they no longer have visual experience even um, in memory. So it's not like everything is dark for them. It's like the concept of dark is no longer a sensory concept. Um, people blind since birth have no idea what they're missing. That is, if you <coughs> don't you worry that you can't see, and they... You know, it's like, don't you guys worry that you don't feel the magnetic field the way birds do? Um, and the answer is, no, what? I mean, um, so some people, after about 15 years of blindness, will be like people who have never seen and won't have a sense of, won't have a, 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 a immediate sense of what they're missing. Um, others will sometimes even intensify their, their visual memories and have an even greater and more vivid sense of what it is they no longer see. Milton belongs to the second category. 
um, Milton's visual sense is astonishing, and um, that's some of, some of what you'll see here, what you'll see here. Um, but, so Joy, yeah, Joyce was blind, although not blind for, um, he kept having operations on his eyes, and he would go in and out of vision, um, but was verbally, it probably um, contributed even more to his verbal powers. Milton was blind, and um, in some ways, as you'll see in the invocation of Book 3, he was grateful for it, partly because it gave him what he called inner vision, and that compare, and he compares himself as a petitioner to the muse. He compares himself to um, Homer, who himself had compared himself to the first and greatest of poets, the legendary poet Thamorous, who also was blind. Um, and so that sequence of blind poets, um, that's something that um, Milton puts himself in that sequence, explicitly compares himself to Homer, um, and is, is doing, telling a lot of Homeric stories. <coughs> Virgil also compared himself to, to Homer, and Virgil is telling Homeric stories. Okay, so that's um, a bit of the background, but the main thing is to say that in the invocation to the muse, if it turns out that you knew all along what it is that you're asking a god to tell you, if it turns out that you knew that all along, that's a way of discovering that idolatry is wrong. That is, if you think, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, you tell the story, you're a god, I'm a nobody, I couldn't possibly tell this story, only a god could, that's idolatry. But if you say, I'm not worthy, tell the following story, and then you tell the story, that can be a discovery that idolatry is wrong because you knew it all along. That, in fact, is the theory of, of what's called analytic silence and psychoanalysis. I think I've become a one-person, um, just in the last year or so, I've become a one-person um, attemptor to get people to get interested in psychoanalysis again, which you really should be. I mean, it's a fascinating theory. Um, but the, an, the idea of analytic silence in psychoanalysis, just to tell you, is basically... Uh, you're supposed to go in for a psycho psychoanalysis and you're supposed to keep thinking that this silent authoritative figure who never approves or disapproves of what you say um, is really knows and you're just confessing what they already know. Um, it's like a good cop, bad cop, except um, the cop says nothing ever and it's the same person. And then what psychoanalysis is supposed to get you to the point where you turn to the analyst and you say, wait a second, you don't know anything, do you? <laughs> and when you say that, you've gotten out of the analysis what you needed to get out of it, which is you stopped believing that someone knew you better than you knew yourself. You stopped believing that someone had more authority over your own inner life than you yourself did. And that's the therapy that's the therapeutic goal of psychoanalysis, is to make you see that you are responsible for yourself and not someone else, and that you um, have the power to be responsible for yourself rather than needing some authority to fig figure to do it. And that, I think, is what Milton is doing. That is, you invoke the muse until you find out you didn't need, that the muse knew nothing. You knew it all. Yeah. 
What is the relationship between psychoanalysis and younger people in terms of that um, authority? You mean child analysis? Right. Um, I mean, is, is, that, is, is the, the, the process similar? Is the theory similar when treating well, it, young it, people? It's, it's a hugely contested idea. So what, what I'm giving you is the really... Um, the strict Freudian school, um, which um, a lot of people argued against, mm-hmm. and they thought, no, actually, we do know more, <laughs> um, and we and they need to know that we want to help them and that we can actually help them in various ways because we understand stuff that they don't understand, and you know, there's that that's the standard view of what psych what psychotherapists are offering, and it's a standard view for good reason because most psychotherapists, you know went through 20 years of training and they really it meant something um, so what I'm the austere view that I'm giving you that's one branch of psychoanalytic theory um, whether it's more helpful than other views I don't know but that's the theory of it is to empower you by showing that um, all power that you ever felt other people had was simply your own power projected onto them but it was your power to begin with um, and so if you say psychotherapy always wants to empower the client, um, the austere version of that empowerment is to make you discover that it was always yours all along. Um, that, that, that probably doesn't work so well for child analysis, um, but um, some versions of it can be helpful. Um, Discovering the limits of your own power is really important for for child analysis. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I just asked because I was um, listening to a program. It was cut in the middle, but it was really fascinating. It was this uh, a young man, I think, at the time the, um, the interview, he was 16, and he had come to the realization that he... Um, that he is is a pedophile, and this started oh, yeah, when I saw he was that. yeah, I, I, I saw it, yeah when he was twelve, like yeah. and, and he avoids children. Yes, uh, but I mean the the you know the the question was like how it was difficult for him to find the right therapist and communicate the problem. So when you're saying about that switch, like you know at one point when when you can say like you know you don't know more about me than I do, I just kind of thought of him and thinking well the the unique problems with young people when they're not necessarily yet you know, in masterly control of themselves and then how, you know, how can we help young people in those yeah. situations? Yeah, so. well, I should say also that what um, Freud is talking about is what he calls a transference neuroses. And um, that's when you basically um, keep repeating your relation to your parents with any authority figure you meet in the world. And um, there are other kinds of mental... Um, difficulties that this isn't the theory for how to treat. Um, and um, I'm sure that would be one of them. Mm. Um, all right, so let's look at the very beginning of Paradise Lost, not the... I hope you read Marvell's um, poem to it, his dedicatory verse to Milton. Well, just in case you need reminding... <laughs> Um, he wrote uh, he wrote one of many many poems um, put at the head of Paradise Lost, just as Milton wrote a poem for Shakespeare in the Second Folio. Um, 
when I beheld the poet blind yet bold, you may not have this in your edition, but Marvell wrote, when I behold the poet blind yet bold, in slender book his vast design unfold, Messiah crowned, God's reconciled decree, rebelling angels, the forbidden tree, heaven, hell, earth, chaos, all. The argument held me a while, misdoubting his intent that he would ruin, for I saw him strong, the sacred truths to fable and old song. So Samson groped the temple posts in spite, the world o'erwhelming to revenge his sight. So he, Marvell, this is a very shrewd thing to say, was afraid that Milton would take these sacred truths from the Bible and cause them, the word ruin, our word ruin, which means wreckage, was not what it meant then. It meant fall. Um, to ruin is to, is to cause something to fall. If something is in ruins, it means it's collapsed. It doesn't mean that it's, that it's just wreckage. So he was going to cause to fall the sacred truths, and what would they fall into? They would fall into fable and old song. That is that what Milton would do is take the biblical story and turn it into a fable or, or a fairy tale, and I, Marvell, was really anxious lest he should do that because blind Samson did that to the Philistines, um, causing the collapse of their temple and destroying their idol, Dagon. Um, which was Milton's last work, was, the, was a play written about Samson destroying the temple. Um, yet, as I read, soon growing less severe, I liked his project. So I started reading Paradise Lost. I liked what he was doing, but the success did fear. I wasn't sure he'd pull it off. Through that wide field now, how he his way should find, or which lame faith leads, understanding blind, lest he perplex the things he would explain, and what was easy he should render vain. So I was afraid, okay, he's doing the right thing, but he's not going to be able to do it. Or if a work so infinite he spanned, jealous I was that some less skillful hand, such as disquiet always what is well, and by ill imitating would excel, might hence presume the whole creation's day to change in scenes and show it in a play. So I was afraid someone was going to read Paradise Lost and say, hey, this would make a good play. Um, and he's probably actually thinking of Dryden. Um, but he basically says, I was wrong. This was amazing. You did something great. And um, he ends by saying, and I just want to point this out to you, well, mightest thou scorn thy readers to allure with tinkling rhyme of thy own sense secure. Um, so he's pointing out that Paradise Lost is unrhymed. And that's something Milton points out, too, and that we'll look at in a second. Um, as you can see, Marvell loved rhyming. We, see it, we saw it over and over again. So he says to Milton, Well mightst thou scorn thy readers to allure with tinkling rhyme of thy own sense secure, while the town bays, writes all the while and spells, and like a pack horse tires without his bells. So all the town poets, um, they... Um, are always coming up with jingling rhymes, and without those bells of rhymes, um, they tire like a pack horse. The reason, the idea being that the reason their bells, that horses have bells on them, is that they keep them cheerful and trotting along, and, and also the, the bells are stimulating to them. Um, their fancies, like our bushy points appear, the poets 
tag them, we for fashion wear. So it's like their rhymes are just um, little ornaments on their poems and that they um, touch them at the end of every line. I, too, transported by the mode offend. I, too, rhyme, um, as I'm doing in this very poem. I, too, transported by the mode offend. And while I meant to praise thee, must commend. That is, I wanted to rhyme and end with the word praise, but now I just have to commend because that rhymes with offend. Um, thy verse created like thy theme sublime in number, weight, and measure needs not rhyme. So you don't need rhyme because your verse is so sublime. You're writing like Homer. So then this you should have um, is Milton has a note on the verse. The verse is English heroic. The verse is English heroic, verse without rhyme, as that of Homer in Greek and of Virgil in Latin. So there he's telling you. Rhyme being no necessary adjunct or true ornament of poem or good verse in longer works especially, but the invention of a barbarous age to set off wretched matter and lame meter. So rhyme is just a, bar a barbaric practice. If your parents ever say, it's not a poem if it doesn't rhyme, you could say, well, John Milton thought it was barbaric to rhyme. <laughs> um, in fact, the word barbaric comes from um, the sound of rhyming. It's bar, bar, bar is where the word barbaric comes from. And it's the Greeks thought, oh, God, these Germanics who are invading us, they just go bar, bar, bar all the time in their poetry. What is that? Um, <laughs> so um, the idea of rhyme is almost, almost um, by uh, etymology barbaric. Mm. Um, the invention of a barber's age to set off wretched matter and lame meter. Graced indeed since by the use of some famous modern poets, namely Spencer and, Mil and um, Shakespeare, carried away by custom, but much to their own vexation, hindrance, and constraint to express many things otherwise, and for the most part worse than else they would have expressed them. So this is the dirty little secret of English classes, which is rhymed poetry almost always says things otherwise and usually worse than they could have been said if the poet didn't have to come up with a rhyme. Um, and so you, everyone suspected that, then you're an English major and you have to pretend that you don't believe that anymore and that somehow the rhymes <laughs> just fall into place perfectly and isn't that just swell? Um, and uh, it's, it's just great that, and it's almost as though you're supposed to treat rhymes as coincidences in every poem that you read. And Milton is saying, no, um, rhyme is bad. And it causes people to express many things otherwise and for the most part worse than else they would have expressed them. Um, so he says rhyme is a bad custom. And the key word there to hold on to is custom, because that's the word that Satan and his followers will also object to, the idea that you would do something out of custom rather than because it's the right thing to do. Not without cause, therefore, some both Italian and Spanish poets of prime note have rejected rhyme, both in longer and shorter works, as have also long since our best English tragedies, that is Shakespeare, as a thing of itself to all judicious ears, hang on to the word judicious there, that is well judging, as a thing of itself to all judicious ears, trivial and of no true musical delight, which consists only in apt numbers, fit quantity of syllables and the sense variously drawn out from one verse into another. 
So what that means is what makes a poem beautiful, what gives it musical delight, is the right meter, the right number of syllables per line, and most important, enjambment, the sense variously drawn out from one verse into another. That is that sometimes a line ending will be a phrase ending, sometimes it'll be a sentence ending, sometimes you'll just go on into the next line, and the variation of enjambments is the most important thing you can do in verse. That's Milton's theory of verse, and it's worth noticing the amazing enjambments in Paradise Lost. Not, so true musical delight consists in those things, not in the jingling sound of like endings, a fault avoided by the learned ancients both in poetry and all good oratory, which is true. If you read Greek poetry, if you read the Iliad or the Odyssey, you'll find that no two lines rhyme. And that's not easy in Greek, right? Oh, yeah, I know so much Greek. Well, <laughs> the thing about Greek is Greek is a highly inflected language. So the way you would say, for example, um, this man's, you know, this man's whatever, this man's car, um, or of this man, the car of this man, the of this man part would be two, two, two anthropou. So, in fact, it's hard not to rhyme in Greek, and it's part of the skill of, of writing in Greek. Oh, yeah. How would you you're say? saying it's hard to rhyme. I was like, I can think of so many songs. No, no, no. It's really easy to rhyme in Greek. Yes, yes. And so, in fact, if you're a Greek poet, I don't. Uh, if you were an ancient Greek poet, an ancient Latin poet, where it's th those are very easy to rhyme languages. Skill consisted in not rhyming, in writing poetry that didn't rhyme, um, and that, and that was true also of their prose. Um, it was just too easy for things to rhyme. And what good writers did was they avoided rhyme as a fault. And Milton is saying, for good reason. So that um, it was a fault avoided by the learned ancients, both in poetry and all good oratory. This neglect, then, of rhyme, so little is to be taken for a defect, though it may seem so, perhaps to vulgar readers, and then this is crucial, that it rather is to be esteemed an example set, the first in English, that actually isn't true, but he thought it was true. The first um, non-dramatic poem in English that didn't rhyme. The first in English of ancient liberty recovered to heroic poem from the troublesome and modern bondage of rhyming. So what he's saying, notice, is I am, doing, I am being revolutionary here by not rhyming, and what I'm rebelling against is the troublesome and modern bondage of rhyming, which I would like to break in order to recover ancient liberty. And if you now ask who in Paradise Lost would be most likely to endorse that ambition, who would it be? No, in Paradise Lost. Oh, in Paradise Lost, sorry. Yes. Yes, could it be Satan? <laughs> Do you know that? Church lady on Saturday Night Live? Look for it. You'll like it. <laughs> Just go to YouTube, Church Lady SNL. Um, she's, she's always um, haranguing. Um, Is that Rachel Dratch? 
Yeah, it's it, before her time. It, before her time. Um, <coughs> I was. It was before I was born, really. <laughs> it was in the seventies. It was before I was born. Um, so, you guys could be politer. <laughs> you really could. Okay. Yeah. <coughs> do you have it on YouTube? Yeah, I just Okay, do just go ahead. Oh, really? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. It's the end of April. Go ahead. Church chapters. Oh, I've seen no, it. No, the All right, so anyhow, her, her big thing is, so who gave us that idea? Could it be Satan? So who gave Milton this idea? Could it be Satan? Um, and the answer is, well, yeah. Or this could be, who gave him the idea of Satan? Could it be poetry? Could it be poetry? So now look at the opening of Paradise Lost. This is um, the invocation of the muse. Um, I had a classics teacher who hated this opening. He said, oh, my God, Milton is just, he just goes on and on and on. Um, it's, it's only, we just get, get, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree is mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden until one greater man restores and regain the blissful seat. Sing, heavenly muse. Look at the Iliad. Anger, sing, goddess. What is all this verbiage? But what all that verbiage is, is all the stuff that this poem is going to be about. So it's worth noticing. Of man's first disobedience, why first? Yeah, the first of... <laughs> yes! Yeah. And the fruit of that forbidden tree, which tree? Knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, and so what does the word fruit mean there? The apple. No. Like the fruit of their actions? Yes. It looks like it means the apple. But he's not writing a poem about an apple. And it's really, and that's what it's going to turn out in book nine, which is when Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Um, Satan says, yay, an apple. Um, but he's not writing a poem about an apple, and he's very explicit about that. There's nothing magical about that apple. That's one of the things that Marvell is pointing out, that um, the way the story is told in Genesis is that Eve eats the apple and um, she shouldn't be eating it because it's, you know, like the apple of smog or something. Um, it's, there's something magical about it that she's not entitled to have and she gets punished for associating herself with that magic. It's more like the Turkish delight that the white witch gives Edmund. That is, there's nothing in the Turkish delight that um, is, is magical. There's no substance within the Turkish delight that affects Edmund. It's simply greed. And the Turkish delight represents 
his greed, his willingness to sell out the rest of his siblings for um, a piece of Turkish delight. Um, but it's not that the Turkish delight is magical. So that's really important to Milton is that he's not, this is what Marvell is saying, he's not telling a fairy tale in which there's a magical piece of fruit that does all this. It's not Jack and the Beanstalk or Adam and the Apple Tree. Um, it's rather that by disobeying what God says about the tree that he forbade, that the fruit of that is all our woe. So in a way, what you're getting here is a little haiku-like explication of the entire poem in those first 20 syllables, so it's longer than haiku, but in those first 20 syllables, which is, if you think that the fruit is magical and that therefore I'm going to write a poem about a piece of fruit, you are thinking in exactly the wrong way. You are thinking the way an idolater would think. This fruit is magical. But if you see that what you did was not to touch magical fruit, but simply to disobey, an arbitrary prohibition. That is, God says, and this is what Milton is going to say in Paradise Lost, in order to find out whether you're obedient, I'm going to tell you not to do one thing. And if you do that thing, that'll prove you're disobedient. Not that the thing itself is important in itself. That would be idolatry, thinking that the fruit is important in itself. It's only <coughs> important because it's forbidden. And therefore, there's nothing about the fruit that makes it magical. But when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they're treating it as though it is some magical counter to God. Eve actually, spoiler alert, she eats the fruit. <laughs> and then she bows down to the tree to thank it and starts worshiping the tree that gave her this fruit. Why does she worship the tree? Because she now has knowledge of evil. What gave her the knowledge of evil? Not the fruit, but eating the fruit. Or to put it actually better, not the fruit, but eating. So it's not the fruit in any way. The only thing that matters about the fruit was that it was forbidden. So it's like in real life, the first time you think that your parents are idiots, um, it's not necessarily that they were idiots. It's that you had that thought and that changed you. And um, so she decided to disobey God and that changed her. How did she decide to disobey God? By eating the fruit that he said not to eat. How did it change her? It made her worship the fruit. Because it did, because eating it changed her. It was something within her that she is now imputing to the fruit. That's like the idolatry or the transference or the belief that someone knows or some, that something is outside of you that's actually inside of you. And so these first two lines of Paradise Lost are about that, of man's first disobedience, otherwise put, the fruit of that forbidden tree, whose mortal taste, why mortal? Because it brought death. Um, it tasted, though, take this as literally as you can, it tasted of mortality. 
but it tasted of mortality not because of something in it, but because tasting it was the moment of becoming mortal, of realizing that you're mortal. As Emerson says in one of his great essays, what is the face the world shows to every aspiring spirit? Strange to say, the fall of man. That is that every human being, (coughs) Emerson's actually getting this from Wordsworth, every human being grows up as an immortal. In early childhood, you're an immortal. And then at some point, you become aware that you're mortal. And many, many people blame themselves or blame something for this. How did this happen? How did I become mortal? A lot of people think it's their first joint or their first cigarette or their first drink or or their first sexual experience or whatever. I was tempted by something, and then I just became an ordinary person. Um, Gave up my childhood idealism. Um, And the reason I bring those things up is that that's what eating the fruit is like. It's like, okay, just take a toke on this. It's really not going to hurt you. Hey, you're right. It's hardly affecting me at all, except I'm in a good mood. Um, I'm told. I wouldn't know. Um, and, um, but then you feel guilty, or then you feel, yeah. As Katha Pollitt puts it in a poem, I'm waking up ordinary. I'm just like everyone else. And that's the beginning of mortality. Um, so don't. You guys haven't touched that stuff yet. Just, you know, don't. Um, and we'll be immortal. Yeah. Well, but no, I mean, you won't, but that's the belief that we all have somewhere in some archaic part of our minds. Everyone, when they grow up, they feel, how did I blow it? It's in A Wrinkle in Time, too. Is it? What there, is or it? not that one, but the one with the desert world, this third book in the series where there are the, the twins and there are unicorns in the desert that you can ride, but you can't touch them in, unless you're a virgin. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, good. Your hand will, like, go right through them. But there, So what Milton is describing here, then, is that everyone feels a sense of guilt about growing up. Um, and that sense of guilt, you know, it's, you, think a lot of, you think a lot of things you shouldn't be thinking. Um, you have a lot of um, views of those you love, in which you're not loving them. Um, and that sense of guilt that people get when they grow up um, comes from the first time they do things they shouldn't or when they become aware of doing things that they shouldn't. Um, and um, that's what Milton is describing here is the mortal taste of the fruit. Um, he's probably thinking of King Lear when um, Gloucester says to Lear, let me kiss that hand, and Lear says, the blind Gloucester says, by the way, let me kiss that hand, and Lear says, better let me wipe it first. It smells of mortality. That is, that um, you become aware of mortality in your own experience. So the taste of the fruit is the taste of mortality. So that whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. And the amazing word in line three is the word our. That is what you're not getting here is a poet who's describing what happened to you. He's describing what happened to himself as well. I too experienced this woe. You don't have an authoritative (coughs) epic figure. 
you don't have Homer saying, anger, sing, goddess, the anger that still scares me even two centuries later when I think about what Achilles did. Um, Homer will talk about himself, actually, when he compares himself to Thamorous later on in the Iliad. Um, but here, Milton is saying from the start, I'm in the same position as every other human being, every other mortal being. So the mortal taste of that fruit brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden, till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. So who's that greater man who will restore us? Christ. Christ. And it's really important that he says man. That is, there's one man disobeyed, one man who is all of us. Adam and Eve disobeyed. That was man's first disobedience. But then a greater man will come, like Adam, but greater, who will restore us and regain the blissful seat. So that's what I want you to sing about. Sing Heavenly Muse. What muse? Since muses are um, belong to Greek and Roman mythology, how can Milton, purporting to tell the story of God and of Genesis and of the fall of Adam and Eve and of Christ, invoke a classical muse? Well, he tells us what muse. Saying heavenly muse, what muse? That on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai, what's Oreb, Mount Oreb, anyone know? Wait. Is that where uh, Elijah went? Or is it still Sinai? Uh, so, Moses. yeah, it's it's actually Miltonic scholarship. So, um, in the Bible, it's Mount Sinai that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the whole Torah yeah. on. But um, if you actually do the scholarship, Sinai is, is, is not the top of the mountain. It's Mount Oreb, of which Sinai is a part. So um, what he's saying is, okay, so Exodus says Sinai, but really Sinai is part of Oreb. And if you want to talk about it now in terms of contemporary geography, you would call it Mount Oreb. I'm going I'm to call it both so just to make sure that you know. So Milton was new more than anyone else at his time. He was unbelievably um, scholarly and retentive of everything he knew. So that shepherd who first, or, so the muse that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. So what shepherd is that? Moses. Moses, who was shepherding the children of Israel to the promised land. And who are the chosen seed? The Israelites. Yeah, the chosen people, the people of Israel. And the muse that inspired Moses on top of Mount Oreb or of Sinai was therefore God. God. Yeah, not some goddess, but God himself. Um, and he, Moses, first taught the chosen seed by bringing them the book of Genesis, and actually by bringing them uh, the Torah, taught the chosen seed. What? The commandments, but he brought the whole Torah down. Um, Milton accepted that, not only the Ten Commandments, but the entire five books of Moses. Um, he brought them down. And how does the first book of Moses, that is Genesis, Bereshit, begin? In the beginning. In the beginning, go on. There 
In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So here he quotes that. That shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning. So we finally get to, in line nine or whatever it is, we get to the words with which God started his story, but we have eight lines of Milton first telling his story and then saying, now you know how it goes from there, in the beginning. So in the beginning are not Milton's first words. He gives us the time before the beginning in the first eight lines of this poem. Then we get to in the beginning, and you're supposed to say, oh, yes, I recognize those words. The three first words of that line are the three first words of Genesis. In the beginning, Moses was taught by the muse how the heaven and earth rose out of chaos. Or at Zion Hill in Jerusalem, delight thee more in Siloah's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God, that is, um, if you would prefer that I invoke you from Jerusalem and from the Temple Mount, um, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song. So I invoke you from there um, to help me to my adventurous song that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Aeonian Mount. The Aeonian Mount is the mountain of the muses in Greek antiquity. My song intends to soar above anything the Greeks did while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. So he's invoking the same muse. He says, well, you helped Moses, now come help me. So here, we're going to play a little game. Um, it's a little dichotomy. You just have to answer one or the other. Arrogant or not arrogant? Arrogant, yes. <laughs> you helped Moses, so now come help me. You helped him write the Bible, now help me write Paradise Lost. Because it's a rival of the Bible's. In fact, it's going to start eight lines earlier than the Bible. And it's going to do any, much better than anything those Greeks could do. I mean, really. Um, but notice that he goes on to say, while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme, rhyme there means poetry. It doesn't mean rhymed poetry. It actually just means poetry, period. Um, so the poetry that he's going to outgo is the poetry of Virgil and Homer. I'm going to pursue something that Virgil and Homer never attempted. What about the prose? I want to tell a story that no one ever had the guts to attempt before in prose or poetry. Is it because it's blank verse? Well, it could seem like prose, but it like this is poetry, but it's a better form of both poetry and prose. Yeah, it, it, yeah, he's certainly saying that, and he's saying that I'm attempting something in blank verse that wasn't done in rhyme, wasn't done in prose, but he's also saying it's better to do it in blank verse because I'm going to tell a story that no one ever else, uh, no one else ever attempted to do in any genre. Um, but in particular, if he's talking about prose, if by rhyme he means Homer and Virgil, what does he mean by prose? Yeah. Say it again. The Bible. The Bible itself. You know, he inspired Moses, and he did a pretty good job, but. You know, really, it's time for the updated, better, more powerful version. So 
help me to tell my story while I pursue things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. So when Paradise Lost is done, you won't need no Bible anymore because this will be the version of the story. So again, arrogant or not arrogant? Yeah. And then he goes on, and chiefly thou, O Spirit, and so he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and chiefly thou, O Spirit, that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure. So notice it's the heart versus the temple. And what he's saying is that there is no, this is going to come back again and again in Paradise Lost, place is not sacred. What matters is the heart. There is no sacred place which is different from the rest of the world. What matters is the upright heart and pure. Instruct me, O Spirit, for thou knowest thou from the first was present and with mighty wings outspread, dove-like sets brooding on the vast abyss and mates it pregnant. We talked about that already. What in me is dark, illumine. What is low, raise and support, that to the height of this great argument I may assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men. Now, um, that, is, that last line is a real crux, and I just want you to think about this for Tuesday. To justify the ways of God to men, that's an ambiguous line. It can mean to justify how God treats men. That is to justify the following thing, the ways of God to men. Or it can mean to justify to men the ways of God. That is, so in one case, it's I can show any intelligent being in the universe that the way God treats men is just. The other possibility is I can show men that everything that God does, the way he treats Satan, the way he treats um, bugs, the way he treats earthworms, the way he treats any being at all, I can show men that all of God's ways are just. And those are two different things. And the question is, what hangs upon, those, upon that difference? What, what difference will that difference make? So that's something to think about for Tuesday. Or if you want to get your paper in on Tuesday, write about it. Um, how many of you are seniors? So I would say for seniors, by what's how late do you want? Uh, our grades are due on <laughs> May fifth. Can we have until May second? You can have till May fifth. What? What, what, <laughs> what about not seniors? Yeah. <laughs> um, when do you want till? Um, May. <laughs> what? May seventh. <laughs> You can have till May 9th. Oh, man. Okay? Wait, this is for the paper that was on Tuesday? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gosh, you forgot me somehow over break. You thought I was serious about having you read A Whole of Paradise Lost, and now you're imagining that the due date mattered? If we're going to write on Paradise Lost, should we like, pick a passage and just analyze it? Sure. Like, well, can we... Does it have to be on Paradise? It's going to be on any poet. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. It have Not the same poet if, you did for your first paper. If we write more of it, does it have to be on the first two books? No. Okay. Cool. Cool. It just, it can't be on Philip Pullman. <laughs> Damn <Versus. it. laughs> I know. Now I really want to write about Philip Wait, what's the subject? Yeah. Everyone has forgotten this question.